Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Like Pastor Bob said, my name is Brandon Buller. For those of you who don't know me, I'm sure most of you do. And I definitely feel way more comfortable standing over there, but I guess I'm over here today. Uh, For those of you who do know me also, this is kind of a weird thing that struck me yesterday. By the end of the day today, you will have heard me preach in this room more than you've heard me make music, which is kind of a weird thought. And uh, I just want you guys to know that I feel really at home here in Indiana. Um, And I think the biggest reason for that is because basketball is the king of sports here. I've been keeping track of the NBA playoffs. I don't know about you guys, but uh, this year's been really interesting. It's a bummer that the Spurs and the Pacers and the Bulls have all, you know, not made it this far, but still a lot of exciting basketball left to be played between LeBron and Steph Curry. Tune in Thursday evening to watch that. Um, One story that's developed over the past couple weeks involves the Houston Rockets and the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, This was just a couple weeks ago in the previous round. To give you a little bit of context, the Houston Rockets, um, they're newer to the playoffs. They're not quite as uh, time-tested of a team. They've got some good players, but they haven't really proven themselves over the long haul. Contrast that, though, with the Clippers, who, frankly, a lot of people had expected to win the championship. They have a high-flying team, one of the best point guards and defenders in the league, um, and they were just coming off this like fantastic Game 7 finish to beat the defending champ San Antonio Spurs were one of my favorite teams. I was a little bit bummed, but I'm, I'm past it now. Well, here's the game one face-off between the Clippers and the Rockets. Uh, the Clippers are playing without their star point guard, Chris Paul. He had an injury, and the Clippers handled the Rockets, even without their best player. Things were not looking very good for the Rockets, and in fact, they got worse. Over the next three games, the, the Rockets, they grabbed one in there, but they ended up going down three to one against the Clippers. The, the Clippers just needed one more win to knock the Rockets out of the playoffs entirely. And I'm sure that if you were in the locker room after the Rockets game four loss, that team would have felt pretty hopeless at that point. Their situation was looking down and their margin for victory, it was slim and it was shrinking. I don't know, have you ever felt hopeless like this? And I I don't think that many of you have been NBA players or played in the playoffs, but have you ever felt like there's no escaping your circumstances, that everything is wrong, or there's no use in even crying because there's so much stacked against you? Well, I do know one person who's felt that way. His name is King David in the Bible. David is the author of the psalm we're going to be considering here today. So if you would, please stand as I read Psalm 3, and then we will get to the sermon. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. 
Selah. Let's pray. God, give us today the truth of the, of the Bible. Allow us to consider ultimate things like salvation in the midst of our trials, in the name of and for the sake of your Son, Christ. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, as I mentioned, David is well acquainted with hopelessness. I think that his type of hopelessness is a lot less trivial than losing a couple games uh, in the playoffs. But to demonstrate this type of hopelessness that David has, you might recall the story uh, of David and Saul. At that time in the kingdom of Israel, there's a king. His name is Saul. And Saul has a pretty hard time obeying God. And on a number of, occasion, of occasions, he actually does exactly the opposite of what, the God, of what God had explicitly commanded Saul to do. So the prophet named Samuel comes up to Saul and he rebukes him and he anoints David, uh, who's the author of our psalm, as the king to replace Saul. Naturally, Saul gets pretty angry and he tries many times to kill David. And so David has to flee in order to escape. Now, what do you do when you've been told that you're the king of Israel, like David has, had been, but the guy who currently holds that title uh, he, and still commands the Lord's uh, or Israel's armies, he wants to kill you. Well, the Lord accompanied David through that time. He brought him through that struggle. And eventually David did sit solely on the throne of Israel. So David was delivered from some pretty dire circumstances. But this psalm, Psalm 3, David didn't write this psalm during the years where Psalm persecuted him. You know, eventually David did sit uh, sovereignly as the king of Israel, but David had yet another time where he felt helpless and alone. In the title of the psalm, as you can see, it says, it's probably in your Bibles, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So this comes a little bit later in David's life. You see, David's son Absalom, who the Bible says he's a pretty handsome guy, he wanted David's crown for himself. According to 2 Samuel 15, Absalom, he went around the city and he would ask the people what tribe they belonged to. But he's a pretty sneaky politician. So whenever anybody answered, I'm a Reubenite or I belong to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Absalom had a nice campaign speech prepared for that person. Let me read from 2 Samuel 15. Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And then a little bit after that, just a, probably a few days after that, Absalom blows a trumpet, and right when he does that, all the followers of Absalom in the city, they yell out all at once that Absalom is king. David and his court knew that's pretty bad news, so they went to hiding out in the wilderness where they could stay safe. He went and hid from the man who claimed to be king, just like he had done so many times before, hiding from King Saul. But this time he wasn't hiding from a guy who had previously been king. This time, it was much worse. He hid from his own son, who had stolen his throne in unrighteousness. You want to talk about a dark place for the soul? This is the child who David bore that usurped him. And it's worse yet, because even if he did go back into the city, they wouldn't even want him anymore. You know, Absalom had already convinced the people that he was better than King David anyways. It's a crisis that David must have felt. 
there aren't any easy answers for him. He's doomed to either hide away for many years out in the wilderness, or else he has to somehow direct a coup back at his own son in order to regain his throne, which sounds just as bad. This is hopelessness. This is the place where you aren't just in uncomfortable circumstances, but you also really can't see them getting any better. You know, there are times where we might go up to somebody who's suffering around us and we say, you know, I know you're going through a tough time right now, but things will get better. I don't think that that's what David's friends would have told him at this point. Well, that's the context surrounding David as he writes the words of Psalm 3. I envision him off in the wilderness. He asks a couple of his advisors who are around him for some privacy in the evening. He kind of secludes himself, goes off to contemplate God's provision for him in despair, and he kind of sits hunched over and scratches these words through tears as he prays. That's David's story up to the writing of Psalm 3. So let's turn now to our Bible text in the Psalms and see what David writes in this situation. We've got a lot to learn from David, God's anointed one, about what we should think in the midst of despair. Christians live in a broken world, but God promises us that he will provide us with the ultimate things. And so I'm going to have three points for us going through Psalm 3 today. The three passages, or I'm sorry, the three points are that we're going to see David's problem, we're going to see our promise, and then we're going to see that both David and we ourselves actually have the exact same hope. The problem, our promise, and the one hope. So what is David's problem? Well, it seems pretty obvious, right? Your son just usurped your throne, and now thousands of men are coming on you to try to attack and kill you. That's a problem. But that isn't even the primary issue to David. Let's start our way through the psalm right at the very beginning and see what David's main problem is. Look with me in your Bibles here. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, Look out, David, we're going to kill you! No that's, no, that's not the text. It says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Well, let's pause right there. David's main concern is not the people trying to kill him, which is interesting. His concern is that he's doubting salvation in God. In the midst of all these pressurized circumstances, David still wants to trust in the promise of God for his life, for salvation. But it doesn't seem like there's much hope for him there. But even more than that, let's remember, too, that God's promise to David was more than just his soul going to heaven after he dies. I'm going to read some of 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16, to get a taste of the, of the promise that God had directed specifically at David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
and your throne shall be established forever. What an immense promise. I mean, when was the last time you ever heard your throne is going to be established forever? That's not a promise that any of us will ever hear. David certainly kept this promise really near to his heart, and he had immense faith to go with that immense promise. David actually believed that God will fulfill his promise. So when David gets pinned out in the wilderness and is facing up to his own demise, he isn't just thinking about himself perishing there. He's thinking about the future promise that he had received from God. He's thinking, what about this everlasting kingdom that you promised me? What about the better things to come? What about my God's faithfulness? All of a sudden, death doesn't seem like the biggest problem anymore. If God doesn't maintain David's throne, then God has been unfaithful to his promise, and we do not worship an unfaithful God. Well, we're going to set David aside for a minute. We're going to come back to his story, but I want to switch gears and talk about how David's promise, uh, problem and promise relate to our condition. So we're going to move to point two then, which is our promise. To see how our situation is similar to David's, I want to give a modern example of David's. Uh, it's called The Pit of Despair. I listen to a podcast that's called Startup, and uh, this podcast documents this new online dating company startup uh, called Dating Ring. In one of the episodes, uh, Startup talks about a well-known phase in any entrepreneurship's uh, or in any entrepreneur's business venture, and it's called The Pit of Despair. Let me give you the story. So you and two friends, you start a company together, and you apply for and you get luckily accepted into this prestigious uh, new business incubator called Y Combinator. And you might have heard of some of its affiliates like Reddit or Dropbox. Um, it's a really prestigious thing. Things are going well for you. You've raised $500,000 already for your company, which is pretty considerable. You, you might have shot for like $700,000, but $500,000 gets you quite a bit down the road. But due to a difference in vision, one of your teammates leaves. And to make matters worse, one of their family members had committed $100,000 to your company, and so you've lost that as well. Then you go to one of the uh, keynote speeches in this, uh, in this program, and a successful startup CEO says, you know, all it takes is for you to have total faith in the product or service that you offer, that it's not only the best at whatever field it's in, but that it is necessary for that company to be in the world. So you go home and look at your, your website and what you have to offer, and you see that your membership is already dropping. And even worse, you just quit your job four months ago to move all the way across the country to go to this uh, program. So let me recap. Your bank is draining. You've lost a teammate. You lost one-fifth of all your company's money. You have no backup job. You are hundreds of miles of home, and the company that you're building is backsliding. That is the pit of despair. And, and yet, all that is fluff compared to the crushing circumstances inside these walls. I know I've been away for almost an entire year now, but right now I know in this congregation there's, there's death and there's grief happening. There's divorce. There are suicidal thoughts. There are people not knowing how to get out of debt. There's sin that's, that's piled up a mile high. There's addictions, there are betrayals. David had his peculiar foes, but we certainly have ours too. 
That's how our situations are the same. But what is our promise? Certainly, with all that's going on in our lives, there has to be some promise that's God, that God has given to us as well. Well, we're going to turn to 2 Peter to see about these promises. We read this earlier in the service, actually. Um, it was the New Testament reading. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. These are God's promises to us, living since Christ's resurrection. And maybe God, I mean, these are pretty decent promises for us after all. Yeah, maybe we don't have a kingdom in our name that will last forever, but, but we have communion with God, starting at our point of faith. We are partakers of the divine nature through these great promises. In the midst of suffering, we escape corruption. In the midst of sin, we have been given divine power toward godliness. And yet, even in the midst of these promises that we may have read before, we, uh, you know, if I were to write my own psalm, it probably wouldn't look a lot like David's. If I wrote mine out, it would probably sound a little bit more like this. Oh Lord, how many are my sins? Many times, my heart boils over with pride. Many people say of my soul, he's never going to make a good pastor. You can kind of see a little bit of a difference between my psalm and David's psalm. My psalm focuses on worldly things. It focuses on me and the here and the now. For me, for my sin, I just, I just trivialize it, right? It ends up being just something that I do against myself here on earth. That could be partly due to my pride and my self-centeredness, but it's my default tendency nonetheless. Now, I do want to say certainly I'm not saying that it's wrong to be concerned with life's little details. In fact, God cares about the little details, big or small or positive or negative, God cares. But equally important is the fact that God is in a covenant relationship with you and with me. In fact, the most true fact about you is that you were created by God. That fact is unchangeable. In a world where anything can change, seemingly at random, seemingly momentarily, God's relationship to you cannot change. So I know that I need the help to be more like David where I think about my circumstances and I, I relativize them all around God who's at the very center. I need a reminder of those more ultimate truths. But for a lot of you, you might have a very different reaction. You, you might write your own psalm that's actually, it starts out kind of more like David's psalm where you might say something like this. Let me start over with that psalm. Oh Lord, how many are my ailments? Many diseases rise within me and cause me depression. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for a helpless cause like me. And guys, I ache with that person. The person who just can't seem to get relief. I don't think we can say that we have the right to question God, but when Christians suffer here on earth, we kind of want to ask God what's going on because there are times where it just seems like he doesn't really care. You and I have, we've either heard the question or we've asked it ourselves, how can a good and all-powerful God, how can, how can he allow suffering and sin in the world? If we don't wrestle with that tension, there might actually be something wrong with us. We should feel a little uncomfortable when we talk about those types of questions. 
why does the godly woman who's known Jesus for 60 plus years, why does she get dementia and live out her days in a nursing home? Why is that, God? And guys, the Bible just it simply doesn't answer that question to our satisfaction. Our feeble and created minds, they're just no match for his eternal and comprehensive intellect. We just can't fathom God's reasons. They're too great for us. So according to God's goodwill in this life, we won't have a sufficient answer to that question. And if I'm honest, some of you guys might even be getting upset with me right now because of my attempt to intellectualize pain and put it up in your head, you know, with some theological question about God. That pain is really intense. It's almost visceral. And here I am talking at some philosophical level about God allowing problems to exist in the world. I have to admit, guys, I haven't been bot- at the bottom of the pit for, for a while now. Yeah, you know, I've, I've worried about finals in the past couple weeks, but that doesn't even come close to losing a loved one. I only have my imagination to understand that suffering. It has to hurt. But here, too, we can remember the ultimate truths, the, thing that are, the things that are most important. Suffering is real. Suffering is heavy. It is persistent. But it is not ultimate. God will bring you to glory. His promise is that he will bring you to glory after the fiery trial if you endure in Christ. That is God's promise to us. But we can actually learn more from Psalm 3, which is David's psalm, and find hope for suffering even in the midst of our lives. His psalm didn't end on the note of hopelessness, and I don't think ours should either. So let's move to point three, which is the one hope, the same hope for David as it is for us. Listen again to Psalm 3, verse 3 onward. Let me read this to you. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. You see, right after this hopeless questioning about salvation, he turns directly to what God provides for him. See in, the verses, in these verses right here what David asserts to be true about God. He says, God is a shield about him, that God is his glory, God is the lifter of his head. God is the one who answers his prayers. God is the sustainer. He's the one who saves. God is just because he strikes all his enemies on the cheek and so forth. He possesses salvation. And God is capable of blessing. And you might be seeing exactly what David is doing here. When he's in doubt of the promises of God, all that David has to do is trust in God as God is, in God's character. David knows that God is ultimate. Humans and creation are only secondary. God is ultimate and humans are secondary. And then at the end of the psalm, we have this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David is inferring that that salvation is something that God alone grants. God is in control of who receives it. Well, how does David draw that conclusion? Well, you guys in New Life, you're going through the book of Romans right now, right? You know that God has preordained who would be saved. You probably talked about that. Or in the words of Huckleberry Finn um, in the Mark Twain novel, God has 
pre-foreordestination. And maybe David didn't know what would be in the book of Romans, but let's recall that promise from 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to read that again. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his, uh, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And I think you guys might know who he's talking about, don't you? Call it out. Who is David's offspring? Jesus. Good. Do you know who will receive the Lord's blessing? Do you know to whom God grants salvation? Even David knows that the Lord's blessing goes to those who are in the kingdom of Christ Jesus. Even David knows that the the Lord's blessing goes to those who are in the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And you, too, today, can be assured that you are in the kingdom of Christ if you've put your trust in his promise for salvation. If you guys have read 1 Peter, which I believe there was a series on just recently as well, you know that suffering is a big part of the Christian life. God does not say that your life will be happy all the day. No, but he does say that you can put your trust in him for all of the ultimate things. Just as Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the kingdom of Christ lives on, too, because God was faithful to his promise, right? Finishing up David's tale with his son Absalom, David mustered together as many, many, uh, many of his supporters as he could, and he planned an escape plan. And a group of men went to fight against Absalom. One of David's commanders, Joab, actually thrust a spear straight through Absalom, and so through that, uh, David was restored to the throne. God held true to that promise to David. And also, God did bless David, also with an offspring whose kingdom would last forever. Christ is that offspring. He came and lived and is living, and his kingdom shall have no end. And some of you today, you know, you might not have already put your faith in Christ for the ultimate things yet, but I want to extend an invitation to you. I'm sorry that I can't promise you that your life is going to get easier if you decide to enter into this kingdom. I mean, David believed in God, right? And his son tried to kill him. Life doesn't get easier. But it really is as simple as trusting in the scriptures as true. And that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a free gift offered to you in Christ Jesus. And it really does grant to you the ultimate things. Things that matter, like eternal life and blessedness. And guys, we're coming to the, to the end here. Remember those rockets that were down 3-1 to one against the Clippers. Well, instead of acting hopelessly... They rallied around their star players, James Harden and Dwight Howard, and they won three straight games to move on to the next round of the playoffs. Sounds like a pretty great victory, right? But the playoffs aren't an ultimate thing to trust in. A championship is not an ultimate thing to trust in. In fact, they went on to lose the next three games and ultimately be eliminated against the Warriors in the next round. But our experience and David's experience is different than the Rockets'. When we get to the final day of Christ, we will live with him forever. That day won't end. Glory won't cease for us. And our hope in Christ will become realized. So trust in God for the ultimate things. His promise cannot fail you.
Let's pray together. Father, your promises are great and your salvation is sweet. We put our hope and our trust in Christ today. You've promised that Christ will wash away our sins and God, we believe it. Be glorified in us by the power of the Spirit. In Christ's wonderful name we pray.